Hello and welcome to the House of Lords podcast. This week we're sharing the second edition of Lord Speaker's Corner. In this episode, Lord McFall of Alclawith speaks to Lord Alderdice. In this interview, the Lord Speaker finds out what inspired Lord Alderdice's work in psychiatry as well as politics, plus his current work in international conflict and peace building. Here's the interview. Lord Alderdice, or John, should I say, Absolutely. a long-time acquaintance and friend, right. welcome to Lord Speaker's Corner. Thank you very much indeed. You're an individual with extensive experience, both in a professional capacity and in a political capacity, and your profession as a psychiatrist, but also politically, is a central player in the Northern Ireland peace process for decades, leader of your party and a speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly on that. How have these two distinct experiences uh, informed your approach to politics? Well, John, they're, they're very closely connected with each other because one of the problems I had growing up as a young person in Northern Ireland when things were breaking down into violence again was I was very troubled by the violence. I, I, I thought we must find some kind of way of living together. But the other thing was I wanted to understand why, why ordinary, in many cases, decent people uh, could sometimes espouse rather ugly ideas and practices. And the explanations of political science at that time, that people were rational actors operating in their best social, economic and power interests, really didn't make much sense to me because I thought these people were behaving in ways that were harmful to themselves and the whole community. So that's actually one of the reasons that I went into psychiatry and psychoanalysis, was to try to understand why people did non-rational and often damaging things as individuals. And then I took that into politics to understand why we did that as whole communities of people. And I discovered, as, as, as we all do, that if you start getting into politics, there are opportunities, it's challenging. Uh, but I, I, I wrote actually at that early stage to the various political parties, not to Sinn Féin, which was still very much committed to the IRA campaign, but Ulster Unions, Democratic Unions, SDLP, Alliance, and Alliance appealed to me for two reasons. First of all, I believed in its principles, bringing people together. Uh, and secondly, because it was a kind of therapeutic context. I could be there and ultimately be there as the leader of the party, but still have non-confrontational, constructive relationships with the other parties and party leaders, and indeed with the, the British and Irish prime ministers. So the two things actually uh, were, were very much uh, working together for me. And that's continued to be the case uh, as I try to understand conflict in other places as well. Yeah. After 35 years in politics, I think I've learned a few things. First of all, that politics and achieving change is hugely difficult. But secondly, if you're going to change and produce policies which the majority of people subscribe to, then you've got to have collaboration and consensus. Has that been mirrored in your experience? Uh, absolutely. I think it's a, th it's a central theme, actually, John, because coming from a sort of liberal background, uh, as you will know, uh, liberals get very excited about constitutions and institutions and regulations and, and all of these kinds of things, which are all very important. But what became clear to me, and indeed to others working in the peace process, was that it was all about disturbed historic relationships between communities. 
And if you're going to resolve the problems, you've got to address those disturbed relationships at the individual level, of course, but also at the level of the community. If you do that, then all of these other things can be addressed. But if you don't address that, no matter what else you do, it, it goes to pieces. And I think perhaps one of the contributions that, that the House of Lords makes is that it is much more focused on this question of how people engage with, with the relationships with each other uh, and with people from outside Parliament uh, and indeed with people in other countries as well because when you go to other countries, people are fascinated by the House of Lords actually and they want to sit down and talk to you and explore it. And I think we can do that in a, in a way that doesn't threaten anybody Everybody knows that there are limits on what we can, we can do, but actually that exploration and engagement with people, much more than rules and votes and regulations, is, is the way you actually make change that works in the long run. Absolutely. We'll go on to uh, other countries later, but I want to explore your involvement in the Northern Ireland peace process because uh, when I went to Northern Ireland, it was still the case that Sinn Féin weren't allowed to be interviewed. There was a voiceover when the principals were there that they didn't engage in any discussions or been any room with unionists as a result. And they didn't certainly didn't handshake mm. any minister or uh, opposition politician. So it, there seemed a hopeless situation uh, from that. How did we get to the situation where not only were they in the one room, but they entered uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly together. And you have a central perspective in that, being the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly. I, I think there were a series of things that happened that affected the way people thought. I mean, first of all, it had gone on for quite a long time. And it was clear to people on, on both sides from a military perspective, whether it was the British Army, the police in Northern Ireland, or indeed the IRA themselves, that while the IRA couldn't be, couldn't be defeated, they couldn't win uh, and, and vice versa. So then people began to say, well, what's the alternative? Do we just keep on doing this forever? Uh, the, the analysis at that stage had been that you'd never get agreement with the, the people who were involved in violence, including the loyalist paramilitaries. So you just got the more moderate, reasonable people in the various parties together and reached an agreement and marginalised the extremists. It was all very reasonable. It just didn't work because the IRA and the loyalist paramilitaries could always do something to blow the whole thing apart, literally. And I remember one day we were sitting in, in a situation like this in Stormont because the four leaders, uh, John Hume, Ian PSD, Jim Molyneux and myself, would often get together with no advisors or nobody from the British and Irish governments and just say, look, what are we going to do about things? And John said, I think I've got to talk to, uh, to the IRA. And I remember Jim Molyneux sitting over here and his face just went completely white. And he said, well, that's it. There's no hope then. Because he felt that if John did that, he was engaging with people who would never agree to anything that unionists could live with. And indeed, unionists would even find it difficult to continue engaging with John. And I was very troubled by it because I realized that, that if we went along the, the way we were going, Jim was right, there was no hope. And, and I wasn't prepared to let go of that. And so I said, well, I think we've got to test what John says to destruction. And that requires a complete change of attitudes and, 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 and reactions. And I remember when I was first elected to Belfast City Council, the first person to come on uh, and say hello to me immediately after the election was Alex Maskey, who was, of course, the, yeah. the whip of, of, of Sinn Féin, indeed the whip of the IRA on the council, and immediately put his hand out, as you say. And I thought, what am I going to do here? And I thought, I've got to engage with this person as a human being. 
and, and I shook hands with them. It was not about becoming buddy pals. It wasn't about ignoring the things his or organization had been involved with. It was about saying, uh, let's, as human beings, try to find if we can make a more human place for people to live and work. And we gradually moved along, making it clear to the IRA and loyalist paramilitaries that if they wanted to engage in politics, there was a road into that, but they had to find a way of giving up the violence. That was the thing that was poisoning everything. They could absolutely, in the case of the IRA and Sinn Féin, have a, a vision of a united Ireland, and it was entirely legitimate to follow that through as long as it was done without threat through democratic politics. And, and it took a long time, and it was difficult and painful, and, uh, you know, there were, there were almost ethical problems in the whole thing. How do you engage with people like that? But ultimately, the ethical question was, do I remain loyal to the past and the things that are important there, or do I remain loyal to my children and grandchildren and try to create a better future for them? Uh, and that's the direction I and, and many others decided to go. Yeah. In fact, I decided to make my first visit as Lord Speaker to the Northern Assembly, and Alec Maskey, as Speaker, welcomed me with a very warm handshake, and he couldn't have done more for me to ensure that all the politicians were brought together to speak to me. And it was a fantastic conversation we had, and you'd have thought we were bosom buddies uh, for decades as a, as a result of that. So for me, it's always fascinated me uh, just how that process has taken place. And I remember uh, John Hume doing his negotiations with Jerry Adams and that didn't go down well in his own party either. So I think we've got to remember that these are bitter were bitter times both within and out with parties as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, John Hume met Jerry Adams at Clonard Monastery, the late Father Alec Reed, the Redemptorist, who, by the way, was a great buddy of Mayblood. So yes. there wasn't much distance between the two communities, but I think they crossed the threshold quite a lot of nights to, so May told me to have a cup of tea, but I'm sure it would have been a bit stronger. <laughs> but but, but doing that clandestinely yes. was really, re really important. And an important part of that too was that both, I mean, obviously Alex Reid was, was a religious man in, uh, uh, and so, but, but so was May Blood. She mm. was a very committed yeah. uh, Christian from the Protestant community. Exactly. And I and, and think one of the things that's important for those of us in politics to remember is that there are other aspects of society which are often very, very important. And sometimes it's people in the religious communities that are able to, to risk uh, the ire of their own people because they believe they're doing something that is right and good. And I mean, even right away back as, as far as the early 1970s, when Protestant leaders were prepared to meet at Fichel with the IRA leadership, mm -hmm. even though it was an illegal meeting, uh, and indeed there was a short ceasefire afterwards. So you're quite right, people like Alec Reid, May Blood, uh, people within the churches, they played their role too, as did unions and people in business. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it wasn't just about politicians. Exactly. You it know, wasn't just about politicians. Politicians could be the catalyst, yeah. but the main participants, uh, the community itself. Yeah. And in fact, I visited uh, Dublin just a couple of months back and I addressed the Shannad uh, and I was very warmly received there. Uh, met the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, gave us half an hour of his time. In fact, uh, after half an hour, I had to say, Taoiseach, 
you've got a lot of business today. Thanks very much for your time. <laughs> but it was such a warm welcome. In the evening, there was a reception put on for me and members of the Doll and the Shannad and others uh, came in to see me. And I, they asked me to make just a few remarks. And the remark I made was spontaneous. But I said, you know, my experience in Northern Ireland and in the island of Ireland as a whole, part of my political soul has been left there. Why I said it, I don't know. You as a psychiatrist, tell me. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there is, there is something interesting and fascinating about particular countries and communities around the world. And there are some places you go and they're very nice people and so on, but that's fine. You, you, there are other places you go and you have, as you say, almost left a part of yourself there and you want to go back and you want to engage. And, you know, there are people all over the world who feel that about Ireland, as Ireland as a whole. Uh, they, 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 they feel that they've got a part of themselves. They're sometimes because they're relatives from the past, but even people without that, they come and there's something about the warmth and hospitality of people. It's a funny thing that, that people who have fought for hundreds of years and done terrible things to each other are also people who have a, a, a passionate engagement with others, a very positive kind of relationship, a great sense of humour, uh, and, and I think you're, you're completely right. It's true of Ireland. It's also true of, of other parts of the world uh, too. It's true of India. Uh, I find it true too of, of, of the African bush. Uh, there are lots of so, parts so of the world. So where, where have you left your part of your political soul uh, in the globe? Uh, well, as I say, uh, th there, are, there are parts of me that, that absolutely love, love places like India and the African bush. But the place that at the moment is strongest in its attraction for me is, is the old city of Jerusalem um, for faith reasons, uh, but also for political reasons. It's an absolutely central place. And if you're concerned about conflict, as I am, then this is the place where the three uh, great Abrahamic faiths mm -hmm. have a central concern. The, uh, the soul, as, as you would say, of, of these three great faiths is there in the holy city of Jerusalem. And yet, unable to get on with each other. In fact, sometimes unable to get on even within the families themselves. <laughs> and so I've been spending increasing amounts of time there exploring the conflict over the holy places in Jerusalem because I think if, if we don't solve that, the problems don't remain there. You know, if there's trouble about holy places in Jerusalem, it doesn't just suddenly appear in Gaza or in the West Bank. It appears in Birmingham. It appears, you know, all over the world, people who have an identification uh, with the holy city because they're, uh, because they're Christians, because they're Jews, because they're Muslims, feel very, very strongly when something happens there. And that's one of the reasons I focus on the other is because for me it's a really important place too. Yeah. You're just back from there. I am. So yes, tell us uh, your latest uh, thinking uh, on Jerusalem. I, I think there's, there's two almost conflicting dimensions of it. One is that the politics which was beginning to move in a positive direction. The, the, the coalition government, which was effectively put together by uh, Yair Lapid, a, a, a friend and colleague I've known for many years, in fact, I knew his father in, in, in politics before that, put together this extraordinary coalition of people from the right, from the centre, and even one of the Islamist parties together in government. But of course, when that step forward was taken, and you've seen this in, in, in Northern Ireland too, when a step forward is taken, there's almost always a reaction back against it. And there's a new government being formed, which is going to be very problematic. There's no doubt about that. One of the places where that's problematic is over the question of, of the Temple Mount and uh, Haram, as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the Muslims would call it, where you have a particular piece of territory that's wholly particularly to Jews and Muslims, 
Uh, and as each side wants to take possession of this holy place, there's a reaction against it by the other side. And I think we're going to see uh, more difficulties there. The other side of that is uh, that I see much more cooperation between the various Christian communities there, uh, the Greek Orthodox uh, uh, and the Anglican communities in particular, but not just them, working more closely together on the holy places uh, and, and uh, prepared to be quite creative and imaginative. So there are very good things happening, but we shouldn't be under any illusion. Each time you take a step forward, there are those who are frightened by that, troubled by it, and they pull back. And I think we're, we're into a place now where Sadly, over the next number of months or year or two, we could see difficulties emerging, which is why it's so important to be in there trying to do what you can. Not to tell people what to do, but to help them explore things in a more creative way. One thing that has impressed me during my time as Lord Speaker has been the soft power of the House of Lords. Now, it's very hard to describe that to people on the outside, but given that you're a member of the House of Lords, given that you're very active uh, both in here and now out with the House of Lords working. What benefit has been a member of the House of Lords been to you in the work that you're doing just now? Well, obviously, it gives you a tremendous opportunity to ask questions and put forward propositions on the areas that you're interested in. You can put down questions, written or oral questions, to ministers. Uh, and sometimes they're questions about the way the government's handling things, but sometimes they're questions that just draw out information that government can get that as a, an individual you can't get the hold of. And you can have debates and, of course, you, you can vote. But there are other aspects of it too. I say to new members coming into the House, you know, every day can be a masterclass in the House of Lords here. As you sit and listen to other members speaking, people who are global experts on various things, as you engage with them about the things you're interested in, it opens up all sorts of possibilities quite, quite extraordinarily. Uh, and so that's very, very helpful. The other thing is, to be honest, when you invite people to come to have a conversation with you, if you invite them to come to the House of Lords, 10 chances to one they'll come because they think, well, that, that's going to be quite interesting, actually. And it gives you the opportunity of engaging pe with people uh, from, from the UK, but from right across the world, to follow up the issues that you're concerned about, issues of conflict. And when I go to other places and I'm introduced as a member of the House of Lords, there's immediately a, a curiosity and an openness to hear, well, what does this person have to say? What ideas do they have? They will know a bit about what's going on. Uh, all of these things are, as you quite rightly say, hard to quantify. You can't measure them and weigh them. But do I have any doubt about the value of them? Not at all. And one of the great things about the Lords, unlike the House of Commons, is that there's not the same sense of partisanship. There's more of a preparedness to engage, listen to what the other guy says, try to understand it, be educated by that engagement, rather than feel that your job is basically, if you're in government, to oppose the opposition, if you're in opposition, to oppose the government. Uh, there's not that same feeling in the Lords, and I hope that we don't get there, because it's one of the great... Uh, values of the House and the contribution it makes to governance and politics and indeed to the wider society here in Britain and further afield. You talk about masterclass, you know, I appreciate that word. I remember being in a debate in Europe, Brexit, when we're coming out, and someone mentioned Article 50 and the problems associated with Article 50 and the interpretation of Article 50. And up pop uh, Lord Kerr That's of right. Kinlochard and he says, I'll tell you about Article 50 because I wrote it 
with this pen. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely <laughs> so extraordinary. Give me a memory that you have uh, from the house, if well, you can. Uh, actually, that, that, was a, that was a very interesting one because he had also been uh, our ambassador in Washington. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember that very well because he, uh, as a Scot looking at things, could understand the Irish question perhaps better than some of his predecessors. And at that stage, uh, the White House was very interested. They were inviting us from all the different parties, uh, Alliance, DUP, Ultra Unionist, Sinn Féin, SDLP, all invited out, and indeed in those days, all coming. And what John did uh, as ambassador there was to invite everybody to come. And so you had Gerry Adams of Sinn Féin there in the British Embassy, uh, not just in the office, but in the ambassador's residence for a St. Patrick's Day event. Uh, and, and it really impacted on people. It impacted on people from Ireland that, my goodness, here's the British ambassador bringing us to his official residence and entertaining us. But it also impacted a lot on the Americans who were completely astonished. They didn't realise there was that preparedness to be open uh, and to engage. Mm -hmm. So yes, you're, you're quite right. And there are lots of the debates in the Lords uh, which are, have been very memorable, but also some of the other events. I mean, I remember one uh, particular uh, event, which was a lecture by, by Chris Patton uh, in the Royal Gallery uh, about the Commonwealth. And it was a tremendous lecture. It was about the rule of Britain. Who's a member the, of the House of Lords. Who's a member of the House of Lords and indeed the, the Chancellor of Oxford University. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, a university has now uh, come out as the top university in the world for seven years in a row. Which you're a member of. Which I'm a member exactly. of. Exactly. So indeed. we'll get on to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> so there, yes, there are, there are many of those memorable occasions. Uh, but particularly contributions that have been made, particularly the way sometimes debates have gone. I remember, for example, a particular debate which was about, in those days, civil partnership for, for, for people from the LGBTQ community. Uh, that was long before the question of, 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 of marriage. Uh, and I remember we were having the discussion and the debate, and one of the, the members of the House stood up and said, you know, when I came in here, I was completely opposed but I've listened to what's gone on in the debate, and I'm seeing it from a different perspective. I'm seeing it from a much more human perspective now, and I need to go away and think about that. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of engagement that I find so nourishing and, and makes me so enthusiastic about what you can do through the place. In terms of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, there are two distinct chambers, yeah. but there is an umbilical cord between them. Can you examine that for me? Well, uh, they are different. And I think it's very important that they're different. Uh, we come from different perspectives. Those that, that get elected to the House of Commons, you've got to work very hard, your constituency, you've got to be very committed, you've got to be there a great deal of the time. And it's very, very important that that's the case. And that because you're elected, the Commons has the final word. But in the Lords, you can take a different approach to things you can also, quite honestly, be more available to go and follow up some of our international concerns and interests and then bring those back into Parliament. And in the end, the two chambers don't get into deadlock uh, and, and gridlock, as is the case, for example, quite often in other places where you've got two chambers with elected mandates and each of them says, I've got the better mandate. I have the right to, to hold, hold business up. We don't do that. We sometimes ask the House of Commons to think again. We may even ask them to think again a number of times. 
But everybody's quite clear that in the end, if the Commons thinks its way through something, if it, if it takes the opportunity to consider it and makes its decision, the Lords will accept that. But the other thing about the Lords is people come here because they feel that they have a contribution and want to make a contribution, perhaps because of their professional background, their academic background, their, their background in military service or in diplomacy or in the professions of various kinds. They come able to make that contribution. And if they were having to be elected representatives there all the time, they couldn't bring that richness in because they would, in a way, be isolated into a political bubble. And I think uh, that's one of the strengths of the Lords, is it brings that sort of experience and expertise. Not that every single member brings that, no. but as a House, we have mm -hmm. that. But, but I think you've articulated the situation in the House of Lords very well, in that in your situation, when you come here, you contribute your expertise and experience but you're suggesting a global reach for members in the House of Lords. And you, you also mentioned the University of Oxford. So you could tell us about that and how that informs your work in the House of Lords. You're not here all the time. You've got an expert task out with the Lords, but you come accompanied by that experience. One of the problems about conflict is it affects people so powerfully emotionally that it's quite difficult to reflect and think about it. When you get into a fight, it's very difficult to think in a rational sort of way. And I've always believed that it's really important for us to think about these things and, 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 and try to understand them. You know, as a doctor, uh, however much you felt upset about the fact that your patient was unwell and, and that you, they were suffering, you needed to bring your thinking parts to bear so that you could make the diagnosis and you could do what was necessary. So when I was working on issues of conflict, I, I decided uh, to, to work from a university perspective, and, and I did that in, in various ways. And later on, I thought, I think we have learned a few things, and I'd like to uh, transmit those to the next generation. I'd like to deepen our understanding through research. And so I, I went to, uh, to Oxford University and set up uh, a small centre there dealing with intractable, uh, violent political conflict. Uh, since then, I've expanded that to work with another centre called the Changing Character of War Centre at Pembroke College because we have a changing character of war and a changing character of peace building. The world is changing and if we're going to be effective, we need to understand that change and we need to change the way that we work if we're going to get a good outcome. So that's what I spend a lot of my time doing now and then bringing that into the work of the Lords. So what you're saying to me is that... Uh a lot of members here have got institutional memory, which is very important. And you also mentioned about the world changing. A number of commentators have mentioned that we live in a world now of polycrisis, where previously we could have uh, intellectual silos for different uh, subjects looking at, but now it's much more complex and difficult to understand and fragile as a result of that. Would you say your membership of the House of Lords helps you uh, in that think tank process? Enormously so. And not least because it gives you historical perspective. You're quite right about the polycrisis that we're experiencing now. But this House has survived through many crises. 
And, and when we think about things here, you very often have people in the house who from their own long experience or their academic and, and historical understanding are able to say, well now, if you're going to understand this now, you need to understand things from before. I remember having a conversation I used to meet quite often with, with Prime Minister Blair to talk about situations of conflict in various places. And we were talking about the Balkans one evening. And I said, well, of course, you can't really understand what's going on in the Balkans if you don't remember what happened when Gladstone and Israeli were in your situation as, as Prime Minister. And he said, John, I don't really know anything about things before the Second World War. And I thought to myself, <laughs> that's why we ended up in Afghanistan. Because anybody that knew anything about the British in, uh, in Afghanistan in the, in the 1800s knows you don't go in there and win. You go in there and, and mm -hmm. lose. Mm -hmm. So this understanding of historical background, deep historical background, is one of the tremendous contributions that the Lords and its members can bring because it's been around and they've been around for quite a long time. doesn't mean they're always right. And it certainly doesn't mean that you don't look forward. You don't only look back. Uh, you, you do look forward, but you look forward with an understanding and an interpretation informed by experience, historical experience, and personal experience over many years in, in a lot of cases. And we've got one of the finest historians in the House of Lords, uh, look, Peter Hennessy. We have indeed. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm a perpetual student of uh, Peter's. That's right. And he came, in, he came into the house quite sceptical of the place in many ways. But I think when he came in and spent time here, uh, he not only began to appreciate the house itself, he began to make an enormous contribution to the house, as you say, and that's a contribution as a public intellectual that he makes to the wider community as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Africa and the population of Africa within a generation doubling, is it to about two and a half billion? That's right. Uh, now, uh, given there's institutional memory here, there's a global reach uh, with the work that you're doing outside. Give us uh, an appreciation of the contemporary situation in Africa and maybe the implications for the future. Uh, well, I, you're quite right. I'm just back from a, a, a couple of days in, in Marrakesh in Morocco uh, with colleagues from the European Union, members of the European Parliament, and political leaders from uh, right across Africa, not just uh, North Africa, but, but the, the, the southern part of Africa as well. And uh, it, it's extraordinary the, the difficulties and dangers that there are there. We don't hear so much about it. We're obviously focused very much on Russia, Ukraine, on the situation with China and, and various other places. Uh, and of course, because of our population here, India and Pakistan also takes up quite an area of interest. But as you say, the population of Africa is growing enormously quickly, which means there are a lot of young people with their own wishes and ambitions, and the more they are able to be helped uh, with education, and, and education is developing a lot in Africa, but that also increases their expectations of life and of what's possible for them. At the same time, climate change is having a huge impact on Africa. It's making it very problematic, and in addition, the continent is, is, is flooded with weapons. There are all sorts of militias with their own agendas. Some of them are just uh, kind of tribal chieftains, really. Others have very uh, robust uh, views, religious and, and otherwise. And there are dangerous conflicts there. And, and people not respecting the borders because the borders probably were a bit artificial when they were created in the, in the post-imperial uh, times. So it's, it's a, a place with huge potential and an increasing population, but with a whole raft of problems of disease, uh, of, of starvation developing in various areas, 
of political difficulties, uh, of, of young people with expectations. And of course, one of the reasons, I mean, quite frankly, that I think a lot of my European colleagues were interested in, in having this meeting is that they know very well that if things do not go well in Africa, those young people will arrive on our shores. Uh, and if, if that happens, we have to be ready for it. We have to be able to engage with them. In truth, we need many of those uh, bright young people to do things for us as, as our population gets older and theirs is younger. But, but how are we going to manage with that? That's not going to be easy. Uh, and so I, I was glad to participate. I was particularly participating on the security challenges. But there were also all sorts of other things that people were, were talking about and exploring. And it's important we do that with Africa. And how do you answer the point that we have enough problems of our own. We've got to pull up the drawbridge. It's absolutely true that we have problems. But you know, when you have difficulties, very often it's helpful to turn to friends and talk to them about the difficulties. And you can sometimes find a way through the difficulties that helps you and helps them. One of the problems we have in, in this country is an increasingly ageing population. You know, the, the two of us will want to make sure that there's enough young people coming through to Absolutely. pay for pensions, to look after us in terms of health care, to make sure the economy grows and thrives. And that's not going to work if we have an older and older population and not enough young people coming through. As I've been saying, in Africa, it's the opposite way around. They, they, they don't know what to do with the young population. And we can collaborate on these things. The reason that we in this country were able to quickly develop a vaccine to deal with COVID that helped our people and the world was because colleagues in Oxford have been dealing with the problems of epidemics and infectious diseases in Africa. Because we went out to work with people in Africa, we developed the techniques to produce vaccines much more quickly. And we all benefited from that, as well as people across the world. Collaboration and cooperation is to the benefit of all of us Getting into our silos and pulling up the drawbridge is ultimately not in our best interests, nor theirs. And collaboration and cooperation, would you suggest that that's a theme of the House of Lords? It very much is, because the opportunity to engage with people who have a different background, different political perspective, different faith background in, in, in some cases, that's a tremendous opportunity. And the, there's an atmosphere, there's a culture in the House of Lords that helps to benefit that. You know, when I became Speaker in Northern Ireland, one of the questions for me was, how am I going to help this bunch of politicians from Northern Ireland, many of whom who have not been legislators in the past at all, they have no experience of a parliament, how am I going to help them? And I decided to come not to the House of Commons, but to the House of Lords, <laughs> to get clerks from the House of Lords, to get Hansard people, to get even when it came to security and the training of the doorkeepers. I got the principal doorkeeper from the House of Lords to come over to Belfast and to train people. Why? I didn't want any kind of increase in confrontation within the Northern Ireland Assembly. I wanted a different kind of culture. You know, the funny thing I discovered was this. When I looked at the dispatch boxes in the, in the Northern Ireland Assembly, they were the dispatch boxes uh, exactly the same design as in the House of Lords, different from the dispatch boxes in the House of Commons. Why? Mm. Because actually when the Northern Ireland Parliament was being set up in the 1920s, it was clerks from the House of Lords that they brought over. They recognised in the 1920s what I recognised almost 100 years later, that the culture of the Lords 
promotes cooperation in a way that is not the case uh, at the other end of the building, for very good reasons. It's not a criticism of the Commons, but we do things in a different way and we make a different kind of contribution. Wise words for me as the Lord Speaker here, where I have to take forward the programme and cultural change. And maybe lastly, uh, John, that involves leadership. What's your definition of leadership? I want you to help me here. <laughs> it, 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 you're absolutely right, it's very important. I remember being out in Iraq with Martin McGuinness talking to some of the parties there and, and he said, the key thing is leadership. And I think leadership means that you've got to, first of all, think, what is it I'm trying to achieve here? So there's a, a thinking part to it. Uh, and then there's an emotional part to it because you have to find a way of bringing your people along with you. So there's an engagement, there's a set of relationships. And I think the third thing is, there is a degree of courage required. Uh, everybody won't agree with you all of the time. Uh, I find, for example, that if I had tried to make sure that all the parties in the assembly agreed with each other, I wouldn't have got anywhere. But I could often get them to the point where they would all accept what I was suggesting. Uh, and, and if it didn't work out, they could blame me. <laughs> but if it did work out, then we were all able to benefit. So I think one has to be prepared not just to think about what you're doing and relate with the people that you're with, but you've got to be prepared to take your courage in your hand a bit as well and step out, not foolishly, not thoughtlessly, but you won't necessarily find everybody supporting you as you take the step, but you can bring them along with you and that's what makes the change. Absolutely. Uh, you remind me of uh, my presence at the funeral of David Trimble, where he had those leadership qualities, but he paid for it uh, as a result. And I think sometimes we forget that, and it came home very markedly to me. You're absolutely right. I've always had a lasting respect for the work that went on in the community of Northern Ireland. As we mentioned, we made blood, uh, Alec Reid, yourselves and others, the Women's Coalition. Keeping that together is really important. Don't leave it to the politicians themselves at the end of the day, because the politicians don't produce the magic spark. That's quite right. It's, we're here as part of the community mm -hmm. and, and trying to work with the community. And we have a particular role, but it's not the only role and it's not the only important bunch of people. And you're, you're absolutely right. You mentioned a number of people who paid some price mm. for doing what was necessary but in the end have the satisfaction of a life well lived. Maybe a last message from you in terms of community, that's really important. You know, in what way is the House of Lords connected with the community? In what way are we part of the community? Sometimes the criticism is that we're aloof, that we're not involved. I think one of the things that many of the NGOs and community organisations around the country have come to appreciate is that there's often a great deal more openness for them in engaging with the House of Lords. Uh, not least because we can sometimes make more changes that are not based on uh, party political affiliation. We also come from many other parts of, of the community. Uh, and there's an openness for people to come here, physically to come here, thankfully after COVID, to the House of Lords and meet with colleagues in all party groups uh, and to engage with members of the House of Lords. I think there is a greater realisation of that openness and I hope very much that we're able to continue uh, to increase that, not just different groups in society, but the different parts of our United Kingdom, uh, all able to be welcomed here 
and to work with us in the House of Lords. Well, John, that was a fascinating discussion, absolutely. And I'm really grateful for that. Uh, but I think in future, I'll have you back, not for Lord Speaker's Corner, but uh, for personal advice in your professional capacity. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't even charge you. <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks very much, John. John. You're Thank very you. Welcome. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with more from the House of Lords. <laughs>